Checking the weather on brown dwarfs and worlds on the eve of destruction. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Our progress in peering across our corner of the universe is utterly remarkable. And that's before the James Webb Space Telescope and the new generation of ground-based telescopes have begun their work. Who'd have thought we'd be able to detect giant planets so close to their stars that they are about to be engulfed? Or that we'd more or less directly see storms on brown dwarfs, those almost stars but more than planets that litter our galaxy? Sam Grunblatt and Johanna Voss are colleagues in the American Museum of Natural History. They'll join us in minutes to share the great science they presented a few weeks ago at the annual meeting of the American Astronomical Society. Shakespeare and poetry? Who expected that combination on What's Up? We'll join Bruce Betts on a literary path to the stars. Infrared is magic. Ask anyone who hopes to do science with the JWST. And it was seven years ago that an infrared camera got us a full-face image of Saturn's moon Titan, peering right through its thick clouds. That's the image that begins the February 4 edition of the Downlink. Below it, you can learn about the star that the JWST will use to begin alignment of those 18 gold-plated mirrors. You can also share in our congratulations for a couple of Planetary Society alumni. Bobby Braun is a member of our advisory council, He just became Space Exploration Sector Head at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. Lori Leshin was both an advisory council member and had a seat on our board of directors. In May, she'll become director of NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. I hope to welcome her back to Planetary Radio around that time. Lastly, we breathe a small sigh of relief, knowing there are more eyes on the sky watching for near-Earth objects. You can read about the expansion of the Atlas Network of Whole Sky Telescopes at planetary.org downlink. The American Museum of Natural History sprawls across three blocks of New York City, right next to the equally iconic Central Park. You could spend days exploring it, including a giant glass cube that encloses a white sphere. That sphere houses the famed Hayden Planetarium, The Rose Center is a stunning facility that carries on a tradition that began 87 years ago. Sam Grundblatt and Johanna Voss work nearby. They are postdoctoral researchers in the museum's Department of Astrophysics. They provide living proof that the AMNH does more than share the wonder of science. Its staff undertakes research that is at the edge of what we know about our world and the cosmos. Johanna, Sam, welcome to Planetary Radio. And congratulations on publications of both of these papers, which are complementary but separate, and on your recent presentations at the uh, annual meeting of the AAS. Welcome to Planetary Radio. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Sam, I think we'll start with you because you were the first that I read about in that uh, release that came from the American Museum of Natural History. Sam, of course, you're lead author on this paper called Test Giants Transiting Transiting Giants 2, the hottest Jupiter's orbiting evolved stars. Has it now been published in the Astrophysical Journal or it's uh, still coming up as we speak? 
Yeah, so the the paper has been accepted for publication. Uh, I don't believe it's been published just yet, but it should be published within the next couple of weeks or so, weeks to months. I know how that can go. I've heard from other people who get frustrated waiting for them to get around to it. And Johanna, you're already over that hurdle because uh, you were published, your paper that you're lead author for was published, I think, on, on January 13th. Yeah, yeah. Um, mine was accepted just in December and was published in January. So it's a really nice start to the year to have one paper in, in the bag. <laughs> that certainly sounds like it. And Sam, I hope you'll be following soon behind. And we will put up links to both of these papers on this week's episode page at planetary.org slash radio. My, how far we have come. And here we now have thousands of not just candidates, but confirmed worlds going around other stars. It's, it's an exciting time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm I'm super excited to be able to be studying this these exoplanets right now because there's so many things that you know. Even when I first started my graduate studies, for example, um, we didn't know we didn't know how many Earth-like planets, for example, there were around sun-like stars. That was something that was discovered in the last not to date myself, but in the last decade. And so it's really exciting to you know be in this place now where we have so many exoplanets that we know of that we can start to really investigate the statistics of these systems and also branch out beyond just stars that are like the sun to study planets around stars that are um, very different from from our sun. Johanna, I'm going to jump over to you for a second uh, because I've, I've got to think that you are just as thankful to be living in this time when we now have the instruments that enable you to do your work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, like when I think back to say before we knew of any planets, I think the expectation was, I can't wait until we start finding other solar systems. And we kind of thought we were gonna find ourselves out there. But with these thousands and thousands of exoplanets we've been finding, we haven't really found the solar system again, you know? And we haven't gotten there yet. And I think it's the technology. I think we probably will eventually. But within those thousands, they're just so weird and wonderful and I don't, I don't think anyone could have predicted the diversity of, of worlds that we were going to find. It is an exciting place to be right now. Sam, let's hear a little bit about these uh, these worlds that you've been studying and, and that you and your colleagues wrote about in this paper. And I'll date myself again with this pop culture reference, but that it appears that they are on the eve of destruction. Yeah, um, the planets that I've been focusing on for my research are generally planets that transit giant stars. And so as the sun evolves uh, throughout its lifetime, eventually it's going to turn into a red giant star. Um, so it'll be much larger, it'll also be cooler, and it'll sort of expand out toward Earth's orbit. That's what I'm trying to sort of understand, is how do these planetary systems evolve? And so the systems that I've been studying as part of my test research program are these planets that are right on the edge of these red giant or evolved stars. The planets I've been looking at, instead of orbiting their star in 365 days, they orbit in closer to three days. Um, the, the sunrise is going to be pretty spectacular on a planet like that. Um, it, yeah, it also means that there's a lot of interaction between the star and the planet. And uh, most of those interactions result in the planet getting pulled uh, ever closer in toward the star. One of the systems that we found, TOI-2337b, is uh, particularly close to its host star, and it's also um, particularly massive. So we believe that this planet is actually going to be uh, inside its host star in less than a million years. So it's, it's really, you know, on the edge of destruction, as you put it. Um, I don't think it's going to be around much longer in cosmic time. 
Yeah, I mean, a million years, that's that, that's a snap of the fingers in cosmic time, right? Exactly, yeah. So in terms of uh, exciting places to be or exciting planets to live on in uh, astrophysical terms, these would be ones to consider. Tell me more about these worlds. They're not tiny. I mean, these we're not talking about Earth-sized planets, right? No, no. So these are uh, much more similar to Jupiter. Um, so these planets kind of range in between uh, masses that are um, around half to twice of that of Jupiter and sizes that range from slightly smaller to maybe 150%, so 50% larger than Jupiter. They're really interesting because they, they're all gas giant planets um, and they're all on these short period orbits, you know, around these evolved stars, but they have vastly different densities. So for example, the least dense planet in our sample has the density of around quark, whereas the most dense planet is more like a solid block of aluminum. They range from sinking to floating, and that probably is telling us something really interesting about how these planets actually got to where they are today. Um, they probably formed in very different places, yet somehow they've all ended up kind of right on the, the, the edge of destruction around their stars. We're hoping that by studying more and more of these systems, we'll be able to understand more about how planetary systems evolve over time. Even though these planets are you know, nothing like Earth, their solar systems might have planets that are like Earth. And by understanding how these planets got to where they are, um, we can understand how these planets, uh, or basically how planetary system architectures uh, change over time. Is it fair to say that even though they are quite unlike Earth, we are seeing perhaps the far distant future of our own world? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair uh, guess for us to make at this point. We can't be sure what these systems looked like when their suns were the age of our sun or as evolved as our sun is today. But it's very possible that as uh, solar systems evolve, essentially the, the, the planets are going to in-spiral toward their host stars as the star evolves. And so a planet that might be where Jupiter or Saturn is today, by the time our sun becomes a red giant, it might be where we're finding these planets. Yeah, I think that's a, a safe assumption to make that this could be the future of our solar system that we're seeing. Johanna, you have been nodding enthusiastically through all of this discussion <laughs> of, the, of the work that your colleague Sam uh, does. And yet you've, you've been studying very different, I, I don't know whether to call them worlds or not, very different sorts of objects, but they can inform us, they are informing us about, about exoplanets. And by the way, I love the title of your paper, Let the Great World Spin, Revealing the Stormy, Turbulent Nature of Young Giant Exoplanet Analogs with the Spitzer Space Telescope. Brown dwarfs, are they planets or stars or, or something in between? Yeah, brown dwarfs are these amazing, mysterious objects somewhere between planets and stars. We think most of them probably form like stars, but honestly, we think some of them are probably planets that were thrown out of their orbit early on. They kind of bridge the gap between planets and stars, um, and they are so interesting, and we've really discovered so many interesting things about them. Um, and one of my favorite things about brown dwarfs is that the very first brown dwarf was announced at the same conference as the first exoplanet was announced. Oh. So on this one day, these two amazing fields of astronomy were born and they've kind of flourished together over the years. And they really, there's so much crossover. They inform each other a lot. Tell me about the specific objects that, that you study, because I guess even among brown dwarfs, there's a lot of variation in size and you study the somewhat smaller ones, but they're still pretty big. Yeah, totally. 
So you can kind of take brown dwarfs and split them into two populations, young and old. The old brown dwarfs, they've been around for a giga year. They're somewhere between, their masses will be somewhere between 30 Jupiter masses and 80 Jupiter masses. However, the young objects, and these are the objects that I've been studying very intensely, they can range in mass from maybe two Jupiter masses or one Jupiter mass all the way up to maybe 20, 30 Jupiter masses. A lot of these objects are truly just these kind of isolated, free-floating exoplanets. They're very similar to directly imaged exoplanets, of which we know of about 30, um, Mm. but they just don't have a star. But that's key to this, right? Because it's made them so much easier to observe. I mean, we hear frequently on this show about the challenge of trying to pick a planet out like the ones that Sam is looking at uh, to, when it's circling next to this gigantic source of light. Exactly. So when, when you have a planet right beside a star, it's completely overwhelmed by this glare of the host star. But when you have these just isolated exoplanets in the Milky Way, you can point, a, you know, well, maybe not a regular telescope, but a regular space telescope <laughs> and learn so much about the object. So we were able to point the Spitzer Space Telescope at a sample of these giant planet analogs to learn about their atmospheres in exceptional detail and in a lot more detail than we could do for exoplanets around a host star. And there is the most remarkable bit of information about this work that you're doing. It's really key to the work, of course, that you are actually observing weather on these worlds. Yeah, exactly. We are trying to understand what the clouds are doing and how they're changing over time. So we basically point the Spitzer Space Telescope at these worlds. We watch them for about a day each, so about 20 hours each. If these objects, if these worlds have clouds in their atmospheres, we can actually detect that by how bright the planet is at any period of time. And maybe the easiest way to visualize this is to think of Jupiter. I'm sure you guys know that Jupiter has this big storm called the Great Red Spot. Oh, yes. If you were to stare at Jupiter with a telescope, its brightness will actually change quite substantially as that Great Red Spot rotates in and out of view because it appears dark compared to everything else. So we're really trying to find these great red spot analogs on these distant worlds. Kind of the whole point of this survey was to set expectations for directly imaged exoplanets. And with the recently launched James Webb Space Telescope, with upcoming 30-meter telescopes, the technique we just used will just straight away be used on directly imaged exoplanets. So it's pretty exciting. We're kind of standing on the precipice of really understanding weather on worlds orbiting stars other than our own. And Johanna, I read that you are making presentations, that, that that's a, a part of what you, you like to do, working with, with young people and, and others. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a lot of programs at the museum for young students. One of the programs I'm involved in is called the SHRIMP program, which, which stands for the Student Research Mentoring Program. So I have three high school students work with me throughout the school year um, and they contributed to this this work that we've just been talking about. They looked at all of the light curves. They found out if there was clouds on each of the worlds um, and they're, you know, truly involved in research, which is a really rare thing for high school students. Growing up as a a kid in the the New York state school system, I remember being uh, maybe 
elementary school or middle schooler going to visit the museum and, you know, seeing the planetarium shows and being blown away. And so now being able to be on the opposite side of that is really incredible. Like Johanna said, the, the museum really is a great sort of meeting place um, for all sorts of astronomers and astrophysicists in New York City, as well as in the you know, larger New York area. Um, so it's really great to have all of these great people coming through, but then also have that connection to the public, which really, you know, I think is, is really important for us as scientists to remember that, you know, everything that we do is largely funded by the public and is for the public's benefit. And so to have that direct connection at the museum, to see all of those young kids coming in to, and to think, oh, yeah, I remember being those kids. Um, you know, I want to show them all the coolest stuff that I can find out, in the, you know, that they can find in the museum, the planetariums over there. The dinosaurs are over there kind of thing. Um, it, it's really a, a, an amazing experience. And and one of the other things that's so great about it is that the science going on there is is really great, too. We have a, a really strong team of, of scientists um, working on a, a wide range of different topics. It's been great uh, for me in so many levels, uh, scientifically and just sort of spiritually or something like that, that I've been able to sort of give back to my community, but also be part of this amazing scientific institution that's that's doing great work, that's building up these connections, and that's getting the general public excited about uh, science and, and the research that we're doing. I love that sense of completing the circle that it was in part the museum that inspired you to go in the direction that has brought you back to that facility. Exciting times to uh, be doing the kind of work that uh, that you're doing. Yeah, we're, we Absolutely. both feel very lucky. <laughs> and uh, I feel fortunate, lucky to have been able to talk with both of you today about this great work. Uh, please keep it up. Uh, thanks for joining us today on Planetary Radio. Thanks for having us. It was really fun. Yeah, thanks so much. This has been a great experience. Really appreciate it. Sam Grunblatt and Johanna Voss of the American Museum of Natural History in New York. They have much more to say in the online cut of this week's show at planetary.org slash radio and from all the major podcast providers. I'll be right back with Bruce and What's Up here on Planetary Radio. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. Time for What's Up? On Planetary Radio, here is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. Bruce Betts is sitting virtually opposite me. Let's go right into it. What's up there? Hey, in the evening sky, Jupiter. Say goodbye to Jupiter, but you can still catch it a little bit longer. Bye. Bye. In the evening, low in the west, but it'll be coming to pre-dawn skies everywhere in a few weeks. But for now, we've got the pre-dawn skies Three planets, super bright Venus over in the east, to its lower right and edging below it, 
will be Mars over the next week or two, looking much dimmer. And to their lower left, for a little while, a brief appearance of Mercury, looking like a bright star, but not nearly as bright as Venus. And uh, in the evening sky, don't forget to check out Orion over in the east in the early evening. And that bright star is Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky. On to this week in space history, it was 2001 that Shoemaker Near, Near Shoemaker spacecraft, became the first orbiter to land on an asteroid. And then in 2015, we had the unexpected arrival of the Chelyabinsk impactor that uh, exploded in the sky over Chelyabinsk, Russia, injuring about a thousand people. Speaking of Shoemaker, Gene Shoemaker, you're going to have some big announcements soon, right, about the Shoemaker Neo Grants. I am, and you're going to talk to people, and it's going to be cool. It's always fun to talk to these people who are just trying to save the world, as the boss says. I think I said uh, 2015 was Chelyabinsk. It was 2013. It was on February 15th, UT. Oh. So I apologize. Apology accepted. Thank you. On to random space fact. <laughs> There have been, since the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecraft launched, been flying through space, been working the entire time, still working, there have been 23 Olympic Games held, including the one currently going on. That's another measurement of how long those spacecraft have worked. Finding that kind of analogy drives it home so well. They're really, really impressive. Uh, I'm kind of an Olympic fanatic when the Olympics are on, so... So we got a lot of Olympics. But first, we'll go to the previous trivia question. For all you English majors out there and cultural people, I asked you, what moon is named after a character from Shakespeare's King Lear? How'd we do, Matt? Had a terrific response. I'm not surprised. You're a literate bunch out there. Now, some of you submitted another moon of Uranus, Oberon. But Oberon, of course, isn't in King Lear. You must be Midsummer Night's dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're confused. Oberon is in the Iron Druid Chronicles. <laughs> yeah. And so is Cordelia, or actually Cordelia, as was pointed out to us by a couple of people like Keith Landa and Mel Powell, is a principal character in Buffy the Vampire Sailor, uh, <laughs> Vampire Slayer, and the Angel spinoff, which is obviously what they had in mind. Right? Are we on the right track here with Cordelia? <laughs> yes, yes, you are. I I always assumed, as does uh, the United States Geological Survey Astrogeology branch, that it was named after uh, Shakespeare's King Lear character, but. Who knows? Well, actually, we do know because it was named a long time ago, but maybe it was a prescient view of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. <laughs> well, regardless of the source, I do have a winner for us. And, you know, I forgot to look it up, but I think he's a first-time winner. It's Bruce McNair in North Adelaide, Australia, who uh, said Cordelia. He also says he loves the show, keeps him up to date with lots of space news. Uh, congratulations, Bruce, a name we like a lot. I hear you like it down there, uh, down under as well. Hey, hi, Bruce. <laughs> Bruce, we're going to send you, or actually chopshopstore.com is going to send you a planetary radio t-shirt. It is a very cool shirt. All of us wear them a lot at the Society. Some people wear them more than me. 
but uh, I love to wear mine, and, and hopefully you'll also enjoy wearing yours. ChopShopStore.com, that's where you can find the entire Planetary Society collection of uh, shirts and, and other cool merch. I got more for you. This from uh, the pun master, Robert Klein. When I am goneral to Cordelia, I will take a Reagan with me for protection. Ha, <laughs> ha, King Lear's daughter's names. Ha, <laughs> ha, funny. And what a bounty of poems, even though our uh, poet laureate took the week off. Please tell me they're all an iambic pentameter. I don't know. Let's see. You have to know that uh, Uranus was the Greek god of the sky for this one. Spurned by her father, cast into the night, Cordelia sought the sky god in her plight. Mysterious and silently she flew so close, but never reaching her love true. Wow. That was almost like real poetry. (laughs) Almost. I mean, as much as I can judge that, which is really not at all. Poetry is in the uh, the ear of the beholder. Here's Jean Lewin, a daughter of nobility rejected by her pops, later proven true of heart, her fate this could not stop. Brought to life within a globe, t'was here she rose to fame, now shepherding Uranus rings. Cordelia is her name. Oh, another good one. Finally, from Daniel Kazard, who usually just sends us uh, the fun little graphics that he puts together. Tis Cordelia, who loves Her Majesty Uranus, according to her bond, no more nor less. Although perhaps a little more, still as the band that ties the twain is in decay until to finally unite them in her death. Wow. (laughs) It's kind of dark, but I didn't realize this, that Cordelia's orbit is decaying and she's going to bust up someday. Yeah, King Lear, man. (laughs) Dude, (laughs) what were you thinking? Tool, Really? Get your head out of that planet, King Lear. (laughs) All right, we're ready for another one. Back to Voyager and the Olympics. So Voyager Golden Records, most of you familiar with these. Messages out to the universe sent with Voyager spacecraft. Here's your question. What Olympic athletes appear in pictures on the Voyager Golden Record. Name all of the Olympic athletes that appear in pictures on the Voyager Golden Record. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Wow, who knew? Not me. I stumbled across it when I was trying to come up with some interesting Olympic thing, and it was like, wow, I didn't know that. Huh, that would make a good trivia question. And here it is. Well, thank you, Andrewian, and everybody else there who uh, made all those choices. You have until the 16th, that's February 16th at 8 a.m. Pacific time, to get us the answer to this one, this Olympic-scale uh, uh, question. And somebody's going to get a brand-new book called Impact. It was uh, just published about a week ago as I speak. Impact, How Rocks from Space Led to Life, Culture, and Donkey Kong? by planetary scientist Greg Brennica, who's uh, up at uh, the Lawrence Livermore Labs. I I have read not all of it, but a good part of it, and it's very entertaining. He throws in a lot of humor and some fun hand-drawn illustrations. And it has, you ready for a random uh, near-Earth asteroid fact? I am indeed. King Tut was buried with a knife made from an iron meteorite. That's out of the book. Yeah. Yeah, I believe there were also tektites involved, but I'm not sure. 
Tektites being when an impact occurs into the earth and a splash of molten rock cools going through the atmosphere and then lands. But I could be wrong on that. I was just trying to pretend like I knew something. Well, the answer might be elsewhere in this book, Impact, uh, which will be yours if you win this brand new contest. And so good luck to all of you. And uh, good luck to you, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you. Good luck to you, Matt. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about ski jumping on Enceladus. Thank you, and good night. Someday, right? I mean, what a great venue for the Winter Olympics. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> don't, don't step in the plumes. Don't step in the tiger stripes. Uh, that's Bruce Betts. He joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its Olympian members. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astro. <laughs>